Well, let's turn together now to the book of First Peter, and we're going to begin a brand new series of messages we're calling Thriving in Exile. There's no doubt that in our culture, things are heating up really against us as the people of God. Listen to this. Recently, a Duke Divinity School professor made this startling declaration on social media. This Duke Divinity School professor said, evangelical Christianity is the greatest threat to human existence today. It must be laid waste. Do you hear that? He said, evangelical Christianity is the greatest threat to human existence today, and it must be laid waste. And so when he was criticized for this statement, well, he deleted it from Twitter. He then said, well, that was taken out of context. Then he said, well, I was using hyperbole. I certainly hope so. And then he doubled down on the sentiment of that tweet. What an attack. And not coming from the leader of North Korea or the leader of Iran, but from a liberal so-called Christian in Durham, North Carolina, Dr. Curtis Freeman. So what is this hatred toward evangelical Christians? First of all, what makes us evangelical? Now for us, this is not a political movement. And certainly that word evangelical is kind of thrown around to a lot of people. We don't necessarily see eye to eye with people who are also lumped under that umbrella. But what the classic meaning of being evangelical is, is simply this, that we believe that Jesus alone is the savior of the world. That everybody needs to repent and trust in Jesus. The one who died for us on the cross was raised from the dead. That's an evangelical. Also, an evangelical is one who has confidence in the Bible as God's word. We believe the Bible in all that it affirms. And we also believe that we have the responsibility to share this gospel with other people. We are evangelists, evangelical. We want to share the gospel. So ultimately, this growing hatred towards serious biblical Christians is because we won't bow the knee to the demands of our generation. We refuse to abandon our confidence in the Bible as God's word. We will not capitulate even under their duress. We cannot give our cultural oppressors what they are demanding of us. You and I know that God has spoken and therefore we're confident in what he has given us in his inerrant, infallible word. In fact, think about it. Our message hasn't changed since the first century as believers. We have the Bible. We haven't changed our views. Nothing strange has happened. We're still teaching what we have received, what's been passed down to us in the Holy Scriptures for 2,000 years. And so we can't go along and we can't celebrate with our culture demands that we celebrate. We can't lead our children into falsehood like they tell us that we must. We cannot join the false teachers who call evil good and good evil, no matter the cost. And so after praying and thinking about what should we go into next, I have felt led to bring us through the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter was written to Christians who are beginning to suffer in the Roman Empire in their part of it. This was written by Peter in the year A.D. 63. And Christians in, in AD 63 were already beginning to experience difficulties, but it was about to get much, much worse. Because in AD 64, the Emperor Nero will take the throne of the Roman Empire and the persecution will become quite brutal for Christians. Now, I don't know what we're going to experience this year or next year or the next year, but we already know that there are attempts to coerce and punish sincere people of faith through new legislation here in the state and also on the national level. 
and legislation to punish people who would dare to hold to historic biblical Christian teaching, particularly on things as non-controversial as male and female. If we hold to a biblical understanding of male and female, then, then difficulty is here and is growing for that. Or if we have a biblical understanding of marriage or sexual morality, if we hold to this teaching that's always been true for Christianity for 2,000 years, that the only legitimate sexual relationship is between a man and a woman in marriage, if we hold to that, there is a price to pay in legislation that would punish you financially for holding such a view. But of course, we love everybody. And we're always going to preach this good truth in love. We preach a God who brings forgiveness for sins for anybody who would confess and repent and come to him through Jesus. In fact, we believe that it would be totally unloving if we were to abandon the teachings of scripture just to get along with the culture. If we abandon the scripture, we have no message of hope to a perishing world. So we find ourselves in a very interesting time in history, don't we? We find ourselves with a lot of challenge coming in Brown and we, we're sizing up the cost that's coming our way for being faithful to Christ and taking up his word and continuing in it when we're commanded not to. So first Peter was written to people like us. And so let's dive in together. First Peter one, let's take on just the first two verses this morning. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So all of 1 Peter, and Lord willing, we'll also go into 2 Peter after this, all of this is going to be so relevant to the times in which we live, but we're just going to today focus on these first two verses. And the first thing I want us to notice is this. We face a challenging world in the love and grace of God. We face a challenging world in the love and grace of God. So let's consider who is writing this letter to those first readers and to us. It's Peter. Notice how he describes himself. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Peter's testimony is a great encouragement to us. Now we considered Peter in the Easter accounts last Sunday and even in the Sunday prior to that. So we remember Peter, he's that one who would often speak first, think later, he would act first. And so we remember him in the Easter accounts, striking that man's ear in the garden. By the way, he wasn't aiming for an ear. That's all he just got. And so there he is, a moment really of failure. That's not the Christian way, but he strikes. Jesus rebuked Peter, remember? He healed the ear of that man. Moments later, after that bold move of Peter, Peter's fleeing along with the rest of the disciples. And then he's denying that he ever knew Jesus. All that's happening really in just a few hours. And here we find ourselves now reading scripture from God through that same man who failed so miserably on that night. We're just noticing the grace of God. Our times are difficult and may get more difficult. Oh, but we face them in the grace and love of God. That same grace and love that Peter experienced. This one who God is using to write scripture to us. So let's refresh our memories about Peter. Well, his career was a fisherman. He was introduced to Jesus by his brother, Andrew. Jesus called him out of his fishing business to follow him. He became one of the 12 disciples. In fact, among the 12, he became one of the innermost three. It was always Peter, James, and John. And by the way, most of the time when you see the name Peter listed there with the others, he's always listed first, often the spokesperson for the other disciples. 
What a training he got, he got by spending three years with Jesus, walking with him, hearing him teach, sleeping beside him, all that. Amazing. And so Peter had a life that recorded in scripture of notable highlights and sadly for him, but for our benefit, notable failings, all recorded in scripture. And sometimes in one day, notable highlight, notable failure in Peter. So Matthew 16 records one of those occasions where Jesus, hey, what are people saying about me? And Peter said, or they were saying all the other options. And Peter said, here's who you are. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus praised Peter for that. You have said, well, you're blessed, Simon. God gave this to you. You didn't just come up with that on your own. It was kind of a real attaboy moment for Peter. And then right after that, Matthew 16 records this. When Jesus said, you know, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer there and be, and be killed. Peter responds this way. It says in Matthew 16, 22, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. We say, ouch, <laughs> just a moment ago. Well done, Peter. And here, these are strong words. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. And of course, Peter's greatest failure was the one we mentioned there on the night that Jesus was arrested. He had said earlier in that evening, I will never deny you. Even if everybody else denies you, I'm willing to die for you. And then just hours later, I've never heard of Jesus. I don't even know who you're talking about. And he was even cursing, saying he didn't know him. But then as we considered at Easter, the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. And it certainly changed Peter. And the filling of the spirit that happened at Pentecost changed everything for Peter. We find him just weeks later after the resurrection. There he is at Pentecost, this one who had denied Christ three times. Now he's preaching before thousands and 3,000 were saved there at Pentecost. 3,000 baptized that day. After that, Peter himself began to suffer persecution, arrested for proclaiming Jesus. And when they demanded he not preach anymore in the name of Jesus, he's not denying Jesus now. He tells them, see for yourself, I can't obey you rather than God. He never failed Christ again, stood strong to the end. In fact, not long after writing first and second Peter, Peter did indeed die for his faith. So there's wonderful encouragement for us in studying Peter's life. We see the grace of God on display. Here's a reminder for all of us that no matter what you've done, God can restore you and use you even after moments of embarrassing failure in your life. We see what the Spirit of God can do in people like us, ordinary people like us who failed, who get up in the grace of God, ask His forgiveness. We see what it looks like to be cleansed and to make use, be made useful again in the kingdom of God. Paul's another example of this. Remember in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul said, I'm the foremost of sinners. And he said, really, I'm an example for anybody else who would believe. If God can save me, He can certainly save you because I was the worst sinner of them all. So because of grace, a past failure does not define you. If you're in Christ, Jesus defines you. If you're in Jesus, the grace of God defines you. So our move is when we have sinned, is we acknowledge it. We bring that failure to God, not acting like it wasn't a failure. We come confessing, agreeing with God, and we repent from it. And we're asked, we ask God then to restore us. Lord, make me useful again. Make me fruitful again for you. So, so our story of redemption is not that we had it all together when Jesus found us. Neither is our story of redemption that we have lived flawless lives since Jesus found us. 
Our story of redemption is this, that Jesus found us as broken people in our sin. And he has forgiven us. And he is at work in us to make us new and to make us instruments of his grace and to proclaim this message of grace to others. So yes, we're in a difficult context as were the first readers of first Peter, but we face a challenging world and the love and grace of God. Second point this morning is this. We face a challenging world with a new identity. We face a challenging world with a new identity. So Peter's writing to Christians both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and they're scattered in their part of the Roman Empire, that part known as Asia Minor, uh, largely present-day Turkey. Notice what he says here. To those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And these are listed, interestingly, in the order by which they're going to receive this letter. So Peter's writing it. This letter is now going to be dispatched. And this is the order, these territories, these places, this is the route that letter is going to take to the churches in those locations. And presumably, they're all going to make a copy of it, a handwritten copy, because that's the only way you do it. And then send that letter on to the next location. That way, God's people in that area would have this message that we have in our Bibles that we're now taking on all these years later. But notice now, Peter calls these Christians exiles. Exiles. The word in the Greek language here means this, a stranger, a sojourner, not simply one who is passing through, but a foreigner who has settled down, however briefly, next to and among the native people. So this word means a temporary resident in a foreign place. That's how God sees you on the earth. You're a temporary resident here. There's coming a time when Jesus returns and the new earth will be here permanently, but not in this present state. We are just passing through. And God sees you that way and it's here in the scripture. You should see yourself the same way. Now, missionaries often more easily see this when they are out of their homeland in another country. Every missionary is trying to live incarnationally there to try to, to, try to fit into the other culture so that they can bring the gospel into their culture. And so what happens oftentimes, though, is missionaries experience what we call culture shock, or some of us would call culture fatigue. You're, you're constantly trying to figure out why do they do what they do? That's a big question. It's kind of a futile question sometimes, but why are they doing that? That just seems so odd. That just seems so counterintuitive. Why are they doing that? So a very different worldview the missionary is encountering, trying to figure out why do they do these customs, but also the missionaries learning language all the while realizing, you know, I really am... Uh, I'm really an outsider here trying to build bridges for the gospel, but I'm really, I'm really seen as a foreigner here. Years ago now, when we served in Central Asia, we did our part to try to fit in to the culture around us. We were learning their language. We would practice their customs, at least in public. In our home, we would use our own customs oftentimes, but out in the public, we would adopt their customs. And, and we tried to even fit in by the way we dressed. I remember asking our language helper one time, I said, Bakir, um, what would people think if I won, wore one of those skull caps that most of the men wear around here? And I was just thinking about it. Should I wear one of those little hats? If I could get one that didn't look like I'd converted to their religion, if I could find one that's kind of generic, maybe, I, maybe I'd wear one if it helped me fit in, though I didn't really want to. Bakir said, well, if you wore one of those, you'd look like a tourist. Um, good. I'm not going to wear the hat then. I don't want to wear that thing. So what good is it going to do if, if I put it on, I'm still going to look like I'm just a tourist. So then in that conversation, we continued. And I said, well, what do people think about us when we're walking around? Because of our light skin, do they think we're Russians here? And he says, no. So, well, why not? He looked at me and said, it's because of the way you walk. 
I still don't know what that means. What kind of goofy walk do I have that I don't walk like a Russian? I walk like some weird American. Maybe I'm a little pigeon-toed. Maybe, maybe that was it. But it's that realization, you know, no matter what I do, I'm probably always going to speak this language with a little bit of an accent. They're going to know you're not actually from here. And no matter what I wear, you're still not really from around here. And I can't change the way I walk. So it's just that awareness that I am an alien here. I am an exile here for a, for a noble purpose, but this isn't really my home. Well, listen, this is what's happened to us here in the United States. You, now, you didn't have to go to another culture to have this experience of culture shock. I bet many of you are having that experience right here. You're in the, the nation of your birth, many of you. And you might be in the same house you've been in for 20, 30 years, some of you. And you think, where am I? I'm an alien. I'm a stranger in a strange land. I don't understand the worldview. You ever had that? Have you ever been driving around listening to the news? I find myself by myself in the car just sometimes just going, that's just, that's just craziness. That's insanity. What is being told to us as truth and that we're all demanded just to jump on board things. We say, that's not even scientific. I thought we were supposed to be scientific. That's not even scientific. I think even children know that what they're saying is can't possibly true. That betrays what we're seeing with our own eyes. And so it's a strange time to be alive. And, and here the, the word of God says to us that we are exiles here. And Christians really always understood them that way, themselves that way. So Hebrews eleven thirteen, one example. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So if you feel like I'm a stranger here, you're in good company. In fact, you're thinking right. Please don't think that this is your home. You are not from this place. I know I am grateful, like many of you, that I have an American passport. Grateful for that. But I understand my true citizenship is not the USA. My true citizenship is heaven. And my people, my people are the people of God. I have more in common with a South Asian Christian or a Middle Eastern Christian than a radically secular American. We are citizens of a higher kingdom. We're citizens of an eternal kingdom in Christ. But we're exiles and strangers or aliens here. So more and more, we need to begin to think like those Old Testament people of God when they were taken in exile out of their homeland into Babylon. What did they do? That's the times in which we're now living, but yet in our own homeland. So we're going to make the best of it. And we're going to remember we are the people of God. We cannot adopt the ungodly customs that are being pushed around us. We'll have to stand strong and maybe read the book of Daniel again to get some help. And all right, what does this look like to stand graciously for God in a time like this so interestingly, Peter then is writing to these people. He calls them a dispersion, but these are people in their own hometowns, like you are likely in your own hometown. And they are aliens and exiles in their own hometown because of the ungodly culture around them. So there's good news here. Not only are we exiles, but notice what we're called. We're called elect exiles. Here we come to this idea of God choosing. God has chosen you to be one of his exiles here. Now that word choosing or election. That word used to make me nervous when I was a new Christian. I didn't know what to make of it, that God chooses, that God elects, that God predestines in love those he's going to save. I didn't know what to do with that. And so I really resisted this early in my Christian walk. In fact, I didn't want to be like those who this is all they could ever think about. They're always talking about choosing, always talking about election and think, man, that's, is there something else in the Bible besides that one thing you're harping on? And then of course, there were those who reacted so strongly against that word choosing election, which is in our Bible. I thought, well, that can't be it. So it was the beauty of what I could do. I'm just going to read the Bible. 
I'm just going to continue to read the Scripture and let the Scripture speak. So I wasn't going to read books on election. I wasn't going to read Calvin's writings. I'm just going to read the Bible. And in reading the Bible year after year, devotionally reading, I just kept bumping into this idea, like we're bumping into it here in our text, that whole idea of elect. The word in the Greek language is eklektos. Eklektos, that's our word for elect. That's the word chosen here. And that idea is throughout the Bible. So think about it. Our God is a God who chooses. We see it clearly in the Old Covenant, don't we? Where God chose the people of Israel to be his people. He did not choose all the other peoples on earth. His chosen people Israel. And it wasn't because they were fabulous. He even tells them, I didn't choose you because you were great and so numerous. He set his affection on them. Yes, to give a savior eventually for the whole world, but for centuries, it's just, he's just working through Israel. We see him choosing Abraham. We see him also Isaac and then Jacob, not Esau. God is a God who chooses. And we see it in the new covenant as well. This word eklektos is used 22 times in the new Testament for believers. So it's important to see that God chose you long before you ever thought of choosing him. Jesus spoke this himself. He said it this way in John 15, 16. He said to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And then the scriptures talk about this choosing. When did it happen? This is amazing. This will blow your mind. Not that we fully understand this. It's just amazing. But he chose you before the foundation of the world. We see that repeatedly. How about 2 Timothy 1, 9? 2 Timothy 1.9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, listen to this, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Mind blown. Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. The book of Revelation speaks the same way. Revelation 13, 8. All who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. Same idea, Revelation 17, 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. Think, when was my name written in the Lamb's book of life? Wow, my name was written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. So this is God's love for you, that he chose you and called you to himself because he loved you before he actually even created you. I love what, what we read in Ephesians. In love, he predestined you for adoption to himself. This is not some cold, calculated, kind of random thing. God, God set his affection on you and chose you. So why did he choose you? Well, it was certainly not because he saw something really wonderful in you and me. And therefore, I'm going to choose you because you're really special and great. And it's not even the idea that he chose you because he knew that one day you'd choose him because that would make you actually initiating all this. No, it's God. It's mysterious. It's glorious. God is the one who does the choosing. So out of extraordinary love and grace, he chose you and drew you to himself. He made you alive at the right time that you might at last respond to him. So you and I, when we came to Christ, though, we understood it from our vantage point, didn't we? So this was my experience. I'm sure it's like yours. If you're a Christian, you, you remember it this way. I suddenly started becoming interested in God. Like I wasn't interested, didn't get it, didn't get it, wasn't interested. All of a sudden I'm interested. What happened? Why did I all of a sudden start wanting God? You start, you suddenly started feeling bad about your sin. Remember that? Used to love my sin, love my sin, love my sin, want to sin all the time. So all I think about is sin. And then all of a sudden I feel bad about sin. <laughs> so I'm wanting God. 
I'm feeling bad about my sin suddenly. I'm starting now to get interested in the Bible and spiritual things. What is happening? This is your story. You, you finally had your pride and your resistance to God broken. And now you're ready to call out on Jesus to be your savior. How did that happen? God was involved in all that because he's initiated that. Now, some people get nervous about the idea of choosing an election as I once was because you think, wait a minute, if I believe that God is choosing and mysteriously, even before the foundation of the world, then, then maybe this would keep people from sharing the gospel. No, you're in error if you don't believe in sharing the gospel. Think about this with me. The whole context of the New Testament where the word eklektos is used 22 times. The whole context of the New Testament is the sharing of the gospel. Paul, who wrote so much about choosing and this great mystery of how this goes on, he's a church planning missionary who suffered greatly because everybody needs to hear the gospel. He talked about how are they going to hear without a preacher? They're not going to be saved unless they believe, and they won't believe unless they've heard, and they won't hear unless somebody preaches them. So, so you're in error if you have taken choosing to mean that, well, then I don't need to share my faith. That is unbiblical thinking. So we are responsible to preach this gospel clearly, and sinners are responsible to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Another encouraging word here is the word foreknowledge here, that God knew you even before he formed you in your mother's womb. He foreknew you and he foreknew these times in which you would live. Isn't that comforting where I'm not here randomly at a time I don't want to live in. This is according to the foreknowledge of God. This is according to the plan of God. Then one more point here is this. We live in a challenging world in obedience to the triune God. We live in a challenging world in obedience to our triune God. Look at verse two again. According to the foreknowledge of God, the father in the sanctification of the spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ for the sprinkling with his blood may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So we ask the question here. God has me living in these difficult, challenging times. What does he expect me to do? What should I do as one of his elect exiles on the earth in 2021? Well, one thing is this. He expects you to cooperate with the spirit's work in your life in sanctification. Secondly, he expects you to be fully obedient to Christ, not obedient to the culture. And he expects you to walk in the ongoing grace of Christ. These three words real quickly, we'll see this word sanctification. We are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God, the father, listen, in the sanctification of the spirit. What's that mean? This word sanctification is beautiful. It means you've been set apart, made holy. And of course this happens at the very beginning. When you put your faith in Jesus, you are made holy. That's why the New Testament calls us saints if you're in Christ. You're clean, you're made holy, you're righteous in the sight of God. You've been sanctified, set apart, holy for God. But this is also an ongoing work of God because we're not perfected. And so we're expected to cooperate with the Spirit of God as he conforms us to the image of Christ. So what should I do in these harsh, difficult days and whatever's coming? Well, I know this, the same thing I was doing before. I need to cooperate daily with the work of the Holy Spirit in my life that I would be more and more like Jesus with his help. I'm not going to be conformed to this world. I want to be conformed to the image of Christ. Secondly, what should I do in these challenging days? I should obey only Lord Jesus. Notice here, we, we're saved, we're exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. Two, four, obedience to Jesus Christ. So what's my mission? I'm going to follow Jesus. We need to follow the example of those first century believers in the Roman Empire when they were told to bow the knee and worship to, to Caesar. The Christian would say, I can't do that. Now you've asked something too much. I'll try to get along. I'll try to do what I can, but, but to bow in worship to the emperor, I cannot do that. We'll say that Caesar is Lord. I can't do that. 
You got to do to me what you got to do. But Jesus is Lord. I can't give you what you're demanding of me. And so understand, what do I do in these days with all this pressure? You obey Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is your Lord. What else do I do in these days? Well, I want to walk in the ongoing forgiveness of the Lord. I love it here. He says, for sprinkling with his blood. And rightly, we think, first of all, and that happened to me when I first got saved, right? I turned from my sin. I asked Jesus, please forgive me for all my sin, all my filth. And the blood of Jesus was applied to me. That, that blood shed on the cross 2,000 years ago, now applied to me because of faith. Ah, I've been cleansed. But here it talks about in the ongoing sense here, that in, in this ongoing walk with Christ, aren't you glad that the blood of Jesus continues to cleanse you of your sin? That, that you weren't just forgiven of your sins there at the moment of your salvation, but even in that moment, all of your future sins were already covered by Christ. This is good news. So I like this AT&T commercial that's on television where you see two customers come into the store. You have a new customer, an existing customer. Anybody seen this? And so both of them want the best deal on a cell phone. And they're both worried that the existing customer thinks, well, the new customer is going to get the better deal. I, I want the same deal that guy's getting. And the AT&T commercial, which, by the way, is not my company that I use, they say, no, no, everybody gets the same good deal. Listen, it's true. Many companies, they'll try to get you in the door with a great deal. And as soon as you sign on, within a few months, they're going to jack up the price and treat you poorly. Jesus does not treat you that way. You're not a customer to Jesus. You're a child to Jesus. And so, yes, you got amazing forgiveness the moment you believed in him. All of your sin and shame washed away from you. But now that you're in Christ, is the deal worse now? Is there no forgiveness now that you're in Christ? Well, I knew better now. I have the Holy Spirit in me. Why did I sin now? I'm without excuse now. Listen, same grace, same blood applied. You're made clean, ongoing through walking with Jesus in his grace. This is beautiful for us. So allow him to cleanse you in these days. When you fail, even as a Christian with your eyes wide open and you make yourself ashamed, don't run from him. And don't give up and run with the culture. Just run right back to him. Lord, I, I was crazy. I was foolish. I was wrong. And be, be confident in what the scripture tells you. He will cleanse you all over again. Oh, this is good. And the last thing what you see is the Trinity here. Real quickly, a Trinity sighting. We weren't even looking for it, but here it is. Verse 2, according to the foreknowledge, here it is, of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ for the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So let's be confident in our triune God even in these days. He is at work with us. He's at work in us. He's working through us as we proclaim his gospel to a broken generation all of this according to his sovereign plan. So do you know him? Do you know him? God has set his affections on you. He's brought you here to hear the gospel. Will you turn from your sin and would you trust in Jesus? But do count the cost. If you put your faith in Jesus and decide to be a disciple of his and follow him in this generation, you will be misunderstood. If you follow Jesus in this generation, and you must, you will be slandered and you'll be insulted along with the rest of us. But you will have Jesus. You'll have his love. You'll have his ongoing grace. And you'll have a church family around you who will love you and support you. And when we fall, we'll pick each other up in these days. And if you trust in Jesus, though persecution in these days, you'll have a home with Jesus forever in heaven awaiting you. And for your faithfulness, however God chooses to do it, he will reward you for your faithfulness in a generation like ours. So I urge you, call on Jesus to save you. And believer, pledge anew to be faithful to Jesus in these days. Let's pray together.